Thanks for listening to the River in the Hills weekly sermon. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more about this podcast and other resources, visit our website at www.riverinthehills.com. You know, I wanted uh, this morning, I want to uh, take some time and I am going to share a little bit. I felt really, uh, as I was praying about over the last couple of weeks, our time together, me being here, having the privilege to be with you, um, I wanted to take uh, a few moments this morning and just share a little bit about what's happening, what God's doing in Corpus Christi. And, and, and there's a little bit of hesitancy at times I have uh, in doing that because I don't want, uh, on, on one hand, I don't want people to feel like, um, like, well, that can only happen with you guys or in Corpus Christi. And, and that it can feel discouraging, like, you know, all that, all that great stuff's happening. Well, we're lousy. We're, we're, you know, I, I feel horrible. So I'm hesitant to share some of that, but I want you to know um, that the spirit behind what I want to share is is, it's not so much the magnitude of some of the the things that are happening, the volume of people that are involved. It's it's, uh, what I want us to to see is uh, how hungry people are and how ripe the harvest is and how he, how no one is disqualified, no one uh, anyone who is willing to obey and say yes, anyone who's willing to answer God with yes, he's willing to use. The harvest is ripe. Jesus did say that the harvest is ripe. He didn't even tell them to pray for the harvest to be ripe. He said the harvest is ripe. He said pray for laborers to go into the harvest. That's how ripe it is. And so um, we are as fallible and as imperfect and full of humanity as any congregation uh, that you can think of. And, and I, I, I believe what happened was is there was at some point in time we were just willing to say yes. And I, I, I really feel like I'm, I'm pretty convinced of this, and I've shared this before, that all that's uh, happening that I'll be sharing with you, I'm, I'm convinced that uh, myself and New Life Church, that we weren't God's first choice. Yeah, we weren't his first choice. It wasn't like he just waited for us to show up or waited for us to, for Bonnie and I to move to Corpus. He wasn't our first choice. It, he had, but we, we just happened to say yes, and we were willing to, to step into, you know, just an obedience in what he had. The other thing that goes along with that is if we weren't his first choice, uh, if we're not obedient, he'll find somebody else. He'll always find somebody, amen, who's willing to. So that kind of keeps it in perspective, doesn't it, a little bit? Like if you start thinking you're too cool for school, God re- reminds you, he says, well, I just want to remind you, you weren't my first choice, and if you mess up, you won't be my last. I'll find somebody because he's going to have his will. He's going to have his kingdom come and his will be done. And so he's going to be looking for whoever is willing to say yes, amen? And and so... Um, but I know I, I brought a, a, a slide, uh, somebody there on, uh, this is the latest book that I wrote uh, called Ears to Hear. There it is. So there's a QR code. I don't have any books with me, but if you have your phone, if you guys are savvy, tech savvy, you can actually hold it up to that QR code right now, and it'll take you right to, the, to Amazon where you can actually order the book. How's that? It's simple. Uh, if you don't want to, you don't have to. But if you you just kind of you can, it's the technology. It's amazing, right? I have a love hate relationship with technology. This part I love, 
And uh, so um, let me just tell you, leave that up if you don't mind, gentlemen. Let me tell you a little bit about this book. Um, the first, the last time I was here, I, I shared a, a book that I wrote entitled Four Wednesdays in July, which is part of that was the story of how the outpouring happened and began at, in, at New Life Church. Um, I've actually redone that book, and that's called Book Two. There's going to be a three-book uh, series. And I, this book here, which is the second book I wrote, it's kind of like Star Wars. It's book one. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. I've never, I don't like Star Wars, but, you, you, I, 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 but anyway, this is, this, is book, this is book one. And the reason why I call it book one is because um, before everything began to take place in 2018, this was one of the things that the Lord led me to in my, in my, uh, in my time with him. You know, Bonnie would be in bed asleep and I would be praying and uh, the Lord began to direct my attention to his message to the seven churches in Asia in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And so I began to read those, and that really was a part of the catalyst of driving uh, myself in, in prayer and driving us to just really opening things up and allowing the Holy Spirit to begin to move um, and really discovering in those seven messages five of the churches Jesus had uh, uh, points of correction. Two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, he didn't, but the other five he did. And so in those seven messages, it was really clear what, what we discover is what really matters, what really matters to the head of the church, what really matters to Jesus. He's walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Those represent the seven churches, which really represents the church. But he walks in the midst. In the Greek, it means he walks within the guts. So he's right there, even though he's never filled out a guest card. He's been in our churches, and he's walking up and down the aisles and in the classrooms, and he's watching, and he's observing. And there are things that he has really strong opinions about that are really important to him, that really matter to him. And so what I discovered was is that there are things that really matter to Jesus that didn't matter as much to us at New Life. And there were things that really mattered to us that he didn't really seem to be that concerned about because <laughs> he didn't mention them. And so it began this process of like this recalibration, this readjustment of the metrics, you know, that, that Jesus, really the, the message to those seven churches was a job per performance review. Here's what you guys are doing really well. Here's what you need to change, Right. And, and so I'm like, man, I think the church overall, including I know New Life, we were, we, were, we were kind of evaluating ourselves with the wrong metrics in many ways. And so, and so I think it was last year I started, I sat down and finally decided to write this book, Ears to Hear. And, um, and uh, uh, I actually, uh, it's not on that photo because that was an earlier photo. But I actually, the book now, uh, it has a forward by Dr. Mo Dr. Michael Brown. Do you know Dr. Brown from the Brownsville Revival? And then he has his podcast, Ask Dr. Brown. And, and so, um, and he made me work for that forward. He is probably one of the smartest men in the body of Christ. I mean, this guy has a doctorate in biblical languages, an earned doctorate. He is brilliant. He's a beautiful combination of a big brain but he understands the things of the Spirit. You know, sometimes you get one or the other, right? <laughs> and uh, especially the intellectual thing can kind of get people derailed. But, but so when I asked him to do the forward, I sent him the manuscript, 
And it was taking forever to get the forward back. And he finally called me and said, you know, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to hurt your feelings, but some of the Greek definitions aren't quite right, aren't precise. He says, I'll give you an endorsement right now, gladly, but I can't write a forward until you fix those things. And I'm like, and he says, but I didn't want to hurt your feelings. I said, you're not hurting my feelings at all. If, it, if it's not precise, I need to know that. So let's fix it. So actually, he didn't have time to do it himself, but one of the guys that works with him also has a doctorate in biblical languages and, and ancient church history um, uh, actually went through that manuscript. And of course, then I'm waiting for the manuscript to come back, and I'm nervous. I told Bonnie, I said, oh my goodness, it's good. I'm going to get this thing back and it's going to be nothing but red marks all through it. This is horrible. I'm really embarrassed. But there wasn't that many. There's probably five, six areas, maybe seven areas where they, I needed to make some changes. And so I say that to say I'm very pleased with the Greek and the church history accuracy in this book. So, so I can enthusiastically recommend my book <laughs> because Dr. Brown made sure that it was uh, very accurate. But there's a lot of things in there, and I think I mentioned this briefly when I was here um, last time, but when Jesus would, would uh, uh, the churches that he uh, brought correction to, there were uh, several times he would paint a picture, a thief coming in the night in the middle of the night, or being lukewarm and spewing them out of their mouths. And what many people don't realize is that Jesus was referencing something historically that happened in that city. So the church in that city knew exactly what he was talking about when he said, you're lukewarm. They knew exactly what that was about. They knew that in Laodicea, they had tried to, uh, they had tried to build an en engineer, a conduit water system to bring cold waters from Colossae and the hot spring waters from Heropolis to Laodicea. And by the time they got there, they were lukewarm. And then when they were drinking the water, because the, the conduits were clay, it, it was all gross. And so they were throwing up after the drinking it. So, I mean, all of, so it's really interesting when you realize that all these different examples, when he talks about a thief in the night to the church at Sardis, that happened to them. They were overtaken by the Persian army in the middle of the night. And so when Jesus said that to the church in Sardis, they were like, yeah, we know what that means. We felt that. That was real. We woke up and the Persian army was there. And so it's really awesome how relevant the Lord is and how clear he was being, right? Does that make sense? So all of that's in the book, and I think it'll be encouragement. And, uh, and it does talk about how all this relates to what's happening in the world today, the spirit of Antichrist and the last days. So that's all woven in in that book as well. So anyway, that's Ears to hear, okay? If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2, if you would. Acts chapter 2. You all ready to get into the Scriptures? Acts, the second chapter. And um, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture for probably every church, but especially churches like River in the Hills who love the things of the Spirit. Very familiar passage here. In Acts, the second chapter, we see the account of the birth of the church. And I want to just start reading here, and then um, I just want to just share some things. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all assembled together in one place. We know there was 120 in the upper room, right? We also know there were 500, though, that saw Jesus ever after he resurrected but there was only 120 in the upper room. I don't know where the rest of the 400 and, what is it, 450 or 
380? 380, 380, I'm horrible at math. This is why I need Dr. Brown to help me. I'm not very smart. So 380, I don't know where the rest of the 380 went. I think, honestly, I think that the Holy Spirit was waiting until they really were in one accord in one place and, in, and of one mind. The power of unity. Amen, everybody? The strength of unity. So, and when they had, the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all assembled together in one place when suddenly there came a sound from heaven like the rushing of a violent tempest blast. I'm reading from the Amplified. And it filled the whole house in which they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues resembling fire, which were separated. Now, here's the part I want us to kind of focus on this morning. They were separated and distributed and which settled on each one of them. I know that's not really deep, actually. But man, that just struck me a while back ago. That the tongue, the cloven, one translation describes, as you know, the cloven tongues of fire. But it says those, that cloven tongue, that fire was separated and those tongues of fire rested on each of them. There wasn't a single 120 individuals in that room that did not have the fire of God resting on them. It rested on every one of them. And it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then later on, as we read through Acts 2, as Peter is describing what's happening, he says this prophecy, what you're seeing is the beginning of what was spoken through the prophet Joel, that in the last, that it shall come to pass in the last days, God declares that I will pour out of my spirit upon well, one translation says all flesh, all mankind, but the operative word is all. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Here's how all it is. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall, your, your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men so, shall see visions. Upon my men servants and my maid servants, in those days I will pour out of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And so I, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to bring across this morning today for us is when the, the church was birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the fire of God, when the fire of the Lord came, that fire rested on each of the 120, not just 12, not just five, not just six, not just seven, not just 11, you know, the apostles minus Judas, not, not just 11, but it says the tongue, the fire of God rested on each of them. And Peter said this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that we read about in Joel, that he would, God in the last days would pour out his spirit upon all flesh, all mankind, not some, all. And here's how thorough it is. Your sons and daughters, which is young and old, or male and female. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams. Young and old. Your maidservants. So, no matter what your social economic standing, the poor, the wealthy. In other words, it's all flesh, right? You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm getting? It says your sons and daughters, both male and female. I mean, we understand the women that were so uh, instrumental in Jesus' ministry. Matter of fact, we read about Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife team. 
But when you read about them, you read about them ministering together. When they heard Apollos preach for the first time and realized he wasn't fully grasping the message of the gospel, it was both Priscilla and Aquila that sat Apollos down and instructed him in a more excellent way. So, I mean, she was just involved in helping coach him as her husband. And so you see all throughout the scriptures, we see that. Of course, throughout church history, you have Amy Simple McPherson, Catherine Kuhlman. Do you know that... that uh, that uh, Dwight L. Moody's wife, Catherine, Catherine, that more people would show up to hear her preach than Dwight. She had this burning to preach, and she finally just started preaching in one of the meetings, and it was obviously socially kind of outside of the boundaries for a woman to get up and preach, not just to women, but to a mixed crowd, and the Holy Spirit fell and, it's, and, and history says after that, typically more people showed up to listen to Catherine preach than Dwight, her husband. He will pour out, <laughs> he'll pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, both male and female, your young men will see vision. So just the young, the youth, just not, in other words, we're talking about not disqualifying ourselves in any way whatsoever. Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery, but he was 30 when he became the right-hand man of Pharaoh. David was around 15 years old when he killed Goliath. Think about that. Jeremiah was 16 when he started his prophetic ministry. All of Jesus' disciples were under 20. Timothy was 16 when he was called into the ministry, and he was 30 when he was pastoring the church at Ephesus. And the Jewish, Jewish history is you're not really considered fully into manhood until you're 40. And historians say the church of Ephesus was roughly around 40,000 at that church before that started fracturing under, under Nero's uh, persecution. John Wesley was 21 at the height of his, of his ministry. So was George Whitfield. Evan Roberts was 26 years old when he led the Welsh Revival. Dwight L. Moody, who I mentioned before, was 25 years old when he's ministering to the soldiers of the Civil War. And he was taking care of the children. Abraham Lincoln actually visited one of, one of Dwight L. Moody's Sunday school kind of things that he had going on. But he started at 20, he started in his early 20s answering God's call. Are you following what I'm saying? Your, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. So young and old. And I'm, I'll tell you, even age-wise, we, whatever that we can't afford to disqualify ourselves. I'm, I'm, I'm reading these, and you're going to hear about some stories about some young men and women in Corpus Christi. But it says your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. We with gray hair or lack of hair, whatever it might be, that, that doesn't go over well, obviously, but, but uh, we can't disqualify ourselves either. I started pastoring New Life Church. I was 52 years old when I became the senior pastor of the church. So I was 50, 52 years old when God called Bonnie and I to step into that leadership of that church. And I've been pastoring it for 13 years. I'm 60, well, whatever the time frame is. This guy's good at math. I'm 64. 12 years? 13 years? Okay, thank you. See, I'm so glad the math guy's here because I'm horrible at that. But listen to me. I was 52 years old when I said yes. 
And I've told Bonnie several times, we're in the middle of this massive outpouring, and I told her, I said, this is like, mostly guys my age are, are like fading, like preparing to ride off into the sunset. And we're like in the middle of this. We're doing stuff that 30-year-olds usually are doing. What are we doing? This is, we're 64. What in the world? Well, your young men shall see visions. Your old men... See, the cloven tongues rested on each of them, regardless of their gender, regardless of their age, regardless of whether they were rich or whether they were poor. William Seymour, the Pentecostal movement in 1904, Azusa Street, was a poor black man. He had both being black and being poor, as far as society was concerned, marked against him. Yet the Holy, but the prophecy is he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh, regardless of who they are, with the color of their skin, their socioeconomic background, male or female, young or old. The operative word is all. Everybody say all. 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 That's the operative word. And so what, we, what we've seen in, in, in Corpus Christi is back in July of 2018, we saw the Holy Spirit begin to pour himself out on that, on that Wednesday, Wednesday, July 11th in 2018. And it's been five years. Uh, I, that, that's right, five years. When I point to you, yes. Over five years, thank you. It's been over five years. We've seen over 5,000 people baptized in water. All of those are pretty much spontaneous baptisms. We've seen thousands of people come to Christ. We've seen multiple miracles and healings in those five years. And in those five years, instead of it kind of digressing and fading, which oftentimes happens when there's an outpouring, it's actually stronger and wider and deeper now than it was five or six years ago. So I'm telling you, it is possible to allow the Holy Spirit to move and, and help us as, in our churches find that gear, that next gear that he has for us. It's possible for, for that to happen, and it, we don't have to go back to how it was. Does that make sense, everybody? One of the things that was really instrumental in that, in that happening, uh, I think, for us was what was happening inside the walls of the church because it started on that Wednesday and then eventually it, it spilled over into our Sunday mornings for both campuses. And, but it was pretty much everything that was happening, the healings, the miracles, the salvations, the spontaneous water baptisms, up until uh, 2021, from 2018 to 2021, all of those things were happening inside the walls of the church, which is fine. I mean, it's great. It was, it's beautiful. It's powerful. And it's still happening within the walls. But up to that point, it was just happening within either our revival nights, our heaven come services on Wednesday, or our Sunday services. So all of the spontaneous baptisms, miracles, healings, power encounters with the Lord, all of that, you guys, was happening within our church buildings, both buildings, okay? That was it. There wasn't anything really happening outside of that at that point. And I hadn't really thought much about it. But one day I was, I, was, uh, I don't know, I was kind of just killing time. And I went to my photos on my iPad. And I'm just rifling through all of these photos, you know, because we, we document. We have photos for every service, every Heaven Comes service, every Sunday service. Literally every gathering we have photos. We have 
photos, Dropbox photos for everything. And uh, so I'm rifling through that, and I had this thought. I'm looking at all those photos, and I had this thought. I'm like, this is awesome. This is wonderful. This is amazing. But man, this cannot be the end of it. I mean, it, this can't be like, okay, we've had this outpouring. We've had this revival. And it's great that everybody's coming to these gatherings inside these walls and having these power encounters with the Lord. And that's wonderful. But my, I had this, like, this thing like, oh, this can't end. This can't be like the end game. There, this, if this is the end game, this is like, we're just, this is like carrying the football, you know, to the 10 yard line, but not getting into the end zone. It's just, this is not something, I, I just don't like this. This has got to be more than that. And so I, I, there's a family that I know that don't attend the church. They have a little ranch and they have a little cabin or whatever. And I went there and I was praying at this cabin and, uh, and, I, and I, was, I wasn't even really thinking about what I just shared with you just now. But as I'm praying, I had, uh, I had uh, like a flashback of an episode of one of the episodes of The Chosen, that, that TV series. And it was the episode, if you've seen it, and I can't remember which season it was. It might have been the second season. But it was the episode where it starts out early in the day, and you've got the disciples there, and... Mary there, Jesus' mother, and there's all these little vignette drama things that are happening between these different characters. And, and by the end of the episode, now it's dark. So you don't even see Jesus until the very end of the episode. And then he comes stumbling into the camp. He's completely exhausted, completely spent, because he's been preaching and praying for the sick from early that morning until the sunset. So he's even got a little blood on him from probably people who were wounded or bleeding, or, and he's just a mess. And you could just tell physically he's got nothing left. And he just kind of collapses in his little pop-up, you know, little overhead tent thing. And, and, but anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody see that episode? Okay, so that thing, that's what I see. And when I see that, what, what, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things in that episode that you can draw from, but what happened with me when I saw that was just this, was this thought. Jesus could have created any kind of model of ministry he wanted because it was him. He could have established any kind of ministry dynasty that he wanted to establish. He could have created any model of how to do ministry, how to do the kingdom, because he was the king. He could have done it any way that he wanted. But it was so simple. It was preaching the gospel and praying for the sick and setting the captives free. It was just that simple. Matter of fact, he spent in that episode, I'm thinking, he spent all day and night doing that. I thought of an article that I read from a, a pastor saying that Jesus spent 70% of his time uh, discipling the, the, the disciples and 30% of his time ministering. And I thought, what Bible is this guy reading? That's not even, that's bizarre. That's not what happened. They watched him from day till night. It was so much, he says, let's come apart. And then they went apart and still weren't able to rest because the crowds followed him. And so, and so I'm thinking, he, he created this simple, beautiful thing, you guys, where the disciples watched him, and then later on he sent them out. And what did they do? They did exactly what he did. And then he sent out the 72. What did they do? They did exactly what Jesus did.
And then after his resurrection and the Holy Spirit comes like we read in Acts chapter 2, and they were all filled with the Spirit, and they all had the fire of God resting on them, what did they do? They did exactly what they saw him doing. Wasn't any different. And I'm realizing the most effective thing we can do is just do what he did. It's not that complicated. Right? But it helped me understand that that I, I realized that, wait, this, wait a minute, we're about, we're about 10 yards away from the end zone. We're about 10 yards away from the end zone. And so I came back and I gathered some of the, 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 uh, the key young adult guys, and really they're ones on staff, and I gathered them together. Uh, we met in my, my, you know, around the fire pit in my backyard, and I described to them what I described to you. And I said, look, and at that time, they've got about 30, maybe 30 or so, 30 or 40 young adult life groups, just within the young adults. And so, and, and a lot of them have uh, people that are co-leading with them. So there's a lot of leaders involved. And so I, when I gathered them together, I shared with them what I shared with you, and I said, look, I said, I know... We never told them that they couldn't. And what I meant by is they couldn't preach, lay hands on the sick. You have to understand, in this outpouring for three years, we don't have prayer lines. And not that we're anti-prayer lines, we're not. But the way the Lord did it with us is it was the body ministering to the body. So it wasn't like anybody was withheld or we never, you know, we had this real weird bottleneck thing where people can't pray for folks. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we do have guidelines and stuff, but there was a lot of freedom is what I'm trying to say already, okay? But I hadn't said anything. It just was happening that way. And so when I came back and gathered these guys, I said, look, I said, I know we never told them they couldn't, but that's not the same thing as telling them that they can. So I want you to tell them all the young adult leaders that they can, the ones that feel this, the ones that are wired this way, the ones that are shaped by God, they can turn their life groups into preaching points and revival points. They can still have fun. They can still hang out afterwards, but tell them they can preach the gospel and they can lay hands on the sick. I know I never told them they couldn't, but it's not the same thing as telling them that they can. Are you following what I'm saying? And so I said, I want you to tell all of your leaders, and, the, and I don't want them to feel like they all have to do it, but it's like, if you feel this, if you're sensing this, if you have the fire in your heart to do this, you have permission, you've now been commissioned to preach and to lay hands on the sick. So there were about 12 life group leaders that made that shift. And one of those was Timothy, Timothy Kelm. And so he had a life group that was meeting at an apartment complex for its student housing for Texas A&M University. And so he was meeting with a small group there of, of, of young adults. And he, so when it was relayed to him, you can do this, he grabbed his Bible, told his co-leaders, we're switching everything up. I'm, we're going to start off with some worship music through this Bluetooth speaker, and then I'm going to get up and I'm going to preach, and we're going to lay hands on the sick, and we're going to give people an opportunity to receive Christ. Well, there are only like 12 or 13 students, that uh, college kids that were there, and it's raining. So he's outside. He moved it outside, moved the meeting outside. So he's standing in the center square of this whole big apartment complex that's all student housing, and he's got, a, and it's raining, and he's got about 12 college kids standing in front of him. And so they play this worship music for a little bit, and then he starts preaching, but he's yelling because he wants, because hardly anybody's there. So he's preaching so the kids in the apartments can hear it. 
And he gives an altar call. Nobody responds. But the next week they meet, there's not 12, there's 20. Then there's 30. Then there's 50. Then there's 70. Now kids are bringing their friends. Kids are getting healed. Kids are getting saved. And then they're baptizing them in the swimming pool on the college campus. So, so then what took place is after, so that started happening in some of the life groups, but then some guys uh, said, man, we can do this. Okay. We want to preach on the campus at the public square area. And so on a Tuesday night, they had some, part of some of our worship guys just with an acoustic guitar, no sound system, started singing, started worshiping. And about a hundred college kids gathered from A&M. And they started preaching the gospel and sharing testimonies. And I was there. I, didn't, I wasn't involved in the service at all. I was just there praying, just kind of in a supportive role. And so they'd get up and they had some students share some testimonies. They preached a real fiery message. They gave an invitation. And all of a sudden, kids started, young adults started coming forward, college students from A&M, getting saved. So I've, I think I have some pictures there. I don't know. Where's Kyle at? Oh, Kyle's right there. Okay, so that's not, okay. Uh, let's go to, um, le- all right, go back to the first one. We'll go back to this. This happened this past August. So there's 11,000 students at Texas A&M. This is an outdoor outreach that we did in August. And so our young adults pastor preached, our young adult leaders, which there's hundreds of young adult leaders now, they were there. But there was 10% of the campus showed up. So there was almost 1,100 college kids that showed up out of 11,000 students. And so uh, Tarek preached this really hard, strong, beautiful gospel message of repentance from sin, homosexuality. I mean, he just was not politically correct at all. And then he had an altar call. And those kids, that he told them, he says, all right, I didn't figure, I didn't think about this. Just part like the Red Sea, just create an aisle down the middle, and they did, and uh, he gave an invitation. 124 college kids came forward to give their lives to Jesus and were baptized in that tank. So the Christian Post picked up on it, and um, CBN, and then Breitbart News actually posted about it a couple of weeks ago, but, but that was, so you can go to the next picture. Um, and so by the time they were baptizing, it was night. It was, it was nighttime. Go ahead. Next picture. These are just some of the, this is that night and it just went on. If you can imagine. Okay. Now stop there. This is our youth now. So that was college. I guess I'm going to have to do this a different way. So this is our youth. So this was just last Sunday night. They had 600 students show up and they had 27 baptisms. Now think about this. When the youth have 27 spontaneous baptisms, they have to call every parent and get permission. So when we as adults have 27, that's easier. But, you know, when they have 27, that's like the equivalent of having 40 because they got to call every parent. A lot of these parents are from Catholic church. So these kids are sprinkled. So they're thinking they don't need to be baptized. So, I mean, it's a miracle when they have, but this happens all the time. This doesn't just happen. I'm telling you, this is just last Sunday night, but this happens. Well, we have about a thousand a year that are, that are baptized. So uh, there's, this is, yeah, go to the next one. That's a beautiful photo there. Yeah, there's another one. These kids, that's the, they're just, that's the altar call right there. There's the kids praying for each other. Let's go to the, okay, so uh, 
go ahead and leave that one up. So here's what happens. We have, uh, in 2022, in January, here's what happened within five weeks. And the reason why I'm sharing this is because this happened so spontaneously. And it actually happened in many ways with the leadership just saying, it's okay. But not actually driving it. Okay? So you had these young adults starting to college kids starting to preach on A&M campus. This is in January. It's 53 degree weather. A bunch of kids get saved. Well, I, I call them kids, but students, college students. And there's no water nearby except the college fountain that's dedicated to a, a graduate of A&M, a, a, a wonderful man from Mexico, Hector P. Garcia. They call it Hector P. Garcia Square, and that's the Hector P. Car Hector P. Garcia Fountain. But the fountain was right there, so they just started, and it never happened before in the history of A&M. All the years of A&M's existence in Corpus, they never had anybody baptizing people in the fountain, in the college fountain. So they started baptizing these kids in the college fountain. And so then we, the next night was Wednesday. We had heaven come. We had a revival night. The Thursday night, 200, they did it again Thursday night on the campus. 200 college kids showed up, and they had a bunch of them get saved, a bunch of them get healed, and they're baptizing them again in 53-degree weather. They're getting baptized in their clothes, no change of clothes. They're just getting baptized, okay? That has not stopped since uh, 2022. It's 2023. So for this whole year and a half, that continues to happen on an ongoing basis, on an ongoing basis. So, so now you had that happening. Then you have about seven life groups that have turned into revival points. I'm getting texts almost every night at eight, nine o'clock at night where they're driving to the church. I don't even know how they're getting, I don't even know if they had keys. I don't even know how they got into the church. I don't even know how. I didn't even ask. But they just say, PM, we're baptizing four. They got saved. We're, you know, we're baptizing them at the church right now. And so I'd get all, so then when this happened in January of 2021 with, in, the, in the college, then we had the Holy Spirit fall on the youth group. Even though we've been in revival for three years, there was just this other gear that happened. And it was a baptism of, of, of boldness on our youth. And so uh, that following Sunday night was when our youth meet. Several of the youth came up to Mario, our youth pastor, and they said, we want to start Bible clubs in our schools. There's no Bible clubs. Before last year, there were no Bible clubs in any of the public schools in Corpus. And especially after 2020, especially after COVID. And all the kids came back messed up after COVID. Spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, they came back. And the college kids too, by the way. Nobody came back healthy with all of that. And so there's no Bible clubs, right? There's nothing spiritually happening at all in the schools, our public schools, nothing. And so they go to Mario that Sunday night after the thing happened with the college kids. I think they got moved. They were motivated by hearing what happened at A&M. So they go to Mario, our youth pastor, and they say, look, we want to have Bible clubs in our schools. And he says, well, how does that even work? They said, well, all we need is a, a teacher to sponsor us. And Mario says, well, do you think you can get a teacher? These are 14 kids from 14 different schools. Okay. And so he says, can you get, uh, uh, can you get a teacher sponsor? They all started texting that moment. Like they're standing there. They pull out their phones and they start texting their teachers. 14 different teachers. They all said, yeah, we'll sponsor a Bible club. So then they had 14 Bible clubs, just like that. 
And so this was in 2021. And so all of a sudden, within five weeks, you've got this outpouring at A&M campus. You've got the, the college kids, 12, about, I think, was what did I say, seven or so? I forget, maybe it was 12. I can't remember, but it ended up being 12. But you had they, their, their life groups turned into revival points, power encounters. Then you had the schools having these Bible clubs. And, of course, some of the superintendents didn't like it. Some of the principals didn't like it. But you know what? Texas law, it doesn't matter. If it's student-led, they can do whatever. And they're all student-led, okay? So here's, so what happened was is in 2021, we had all of these Bible clubs and all of these kids. It was incredible. I literally am thinking, I don't see how this could get even any better. I don't even know how this, I don't even know if there is another gear. Well, they found another gear this year. There are actually some of the life groups for the college kids. Listen, some of them are having 80 or 90 college students in their life group. One couple who were on staff knocked a wall down in their house so they could accommodate last year, so they could accommodate more kids. More students showed up. Now they're... They, they knocked the wall down, I guess, for nothing. I guess, well, I guess it wasn't for nothing. They were, they, they filled up their house, but now they're at 90 or so college kids. Now they're in their backyard. He's got a horse trough in his backyard. So they're baptizing kids, getting them saved, laying hands on the sick. And there's several of them that are doing that several this year. So all of a sudden we have, we have almost exponentially more college kids showing up to life groups and more of them getting saved and healed and baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. Same thing's happening in the schools. They would have maybe 30 or 40 in a a Bible club, which is huge. That's big, you guys. I mean, it's in the school, right? Now they're having 80, 90, 100. So this one right here, they started off Veterans High School. It's one of the main high schools there. They started off with 55. Then they went to 113, or no, then they went to 80. And when they went to 80, this, that day they went to 80, they had 20 kids give their lives to Jesus because these students are being coached by our youth staff and they're coaching them to give invitations for salvation. And so they're doing that, but they can, and nobody can stop them because it's student-led. So it went from 55 to 80 to 113, and then last week there were 169 They had to move into the library. So there's 169 students there, and I'm not sure how many got saved. Several got saved. So that's happening all throughout the public schools, junior high and senior high. You've got A&M. You've got the life groups happening. And so here's what, here's what happened. When I came back from the ranch and I said, look, we, didn't, we never told them. I know we never told them they couldn't, but that's not the same thing as telling them that they can. And what came out of that meeting was this phrase, tell them they can create their own pulpit, a place where God's word can be heard and his presence can be experienced, and it can be anywhere. Wherever you're at, that can be your pulpit if you want it to be a pulpit. If you want it to be a place where God's word can be heard and his presence can be experienced. We had two young gals who were working at a gym, and they asked the owner of the gym, they're real fitness gals, and they're just real strong. They look like they could do these what is the, the, the CrossFit competitions? They're just really, really tough gals. And they asked the boss, can we, can we have one night where we're not charging anybody? We want to have a Bible study. We want to do a fitness thing, put them through a workout, then have a Bible study. Can we do that? And the boss says, yeah, sure, you can do that. 
So they started doing that. And, and it wasn't just young people showing up. It was older people showing up as well. And then they would do the workout and they were creating their own pulpit because it was passed down. The, the term was, you can create your own pulpit. You can do this. Pastor Mike's commissioning all of us. You can do this. You can preach. You can create your own pulpit. We say, well, we'll our, we, do, we do the gym thing. That'll be our pulpit. So now they're giving invitations for salvation, and they're finding some place to baptize them. They're going to the, uh, to the uh, secondary campus, the south campus, we call it, and baptizing them. And that little group starts growing. Well, the boss realizes more people are coming out to this group, but they're not getting any money for it. So they told the girls, you can't do this anymore. And the girl says, okay. So they quit the gym and started their own gym. Out of the blue, they just says, let's start our own gym. Somebody helped finance it for them. In a matter of two to three weeks, they had their own gym. And now they're, they have people coming all the time and they still are doing that. They're still gathering people, working them out till they sweat and almost pass out and then preaching the gospel to them, right? And, and, and just creating your own pulpit, a place where God's word can be heard, his voice can be heard, his presence can be experienced. Instead of waiting for the pastor to give you a pulpit, we said, create your own pulpit. You're commissioned. Go. The fire of God rested on each of them, male and female, young and old, rich and poor. Go. You can do it. Wherever you're at, make that your pulpit, whether it's on the street, whether it's in a coffee shop, whether it's in a break room, whether it's in a gym, whether it's in your backyard. Create your own pulpit where God's voice can be heard and his presence can be experienced and their lives can be changed. And so they just started doing that. And, and for whatever reason, it just, it took off. People just, it just became exponential. It's hard to even keep up. I mean, we, we really just, we're even having difficulty just being able to document all of the healings, the miracles. We had a man who's healed and he was blind in one eye uh, as a result of brain surgery 13 years ago. He's miraculously healed. We had a woman who had a full hysterectomy but was having problems because of that. And the Lord touched her body and recreated a new ovary. I don't know why he didn't give her two, but he gave her one. And the doctor, female doctor, says, I don't know how to explain this, but you, don't, you didn't have any ovaries, but you have a ovary now, which balanced her out. It was all she needed to be balanced out. It's just crazy. Uh, one gal got healed in her back and then she turned around and laid hands on a lady who had breast cancer and she got healed and she went to the doctor the next day for her checkup and he says, you don't have breast cancer. So all of this, uh, and honestly, it's everybody, just people are creating their own pulpit. They're saying, well, let me pray for you. Let me preach to you. Let me encourage you. Let me lay hands on you. Let me prophesy to you. And it's, it's been incredible. And I'm convinced I'm convinced that one of the reasons why the Jesus movement was the closest thing to the third, to an awakening is because even though there was Chuck Smith who was pastoring the kids, and even though Lonnie Frisbee was kind of like the initial lightning rod, the catalyst, it wasn't centered in one person. So it was really difficult for the enemy because, he, he, yeah, he couldn't. I mean, if it was just one person, you take that guy out, the whole thing falls apart. But it was hippies getting saved and then turning around and preaching to their friends and then baptizing them. Does this make sense, everybody? 
So about, about a month ago, there were two college baseball players, A&M baseball players, freshmen that showed up to the college. There was a junior that's been a member of the church, college, baseball player. He's witnessing to these two kids on a Sunday night. They, they grew up in church, but they're both backslidden, just being college guys, you know, just being loose and sexually immoral and just pushing the envelope and knowing they're not living like they're supposed to. And this one guy that's a junior that's been a part of new life and a been part of this revival, he's sharing what the Lord's done in his life. Well, those two guys get convicted, majorly convicted. I mean, they are weeping. Now it's four o'clock in the morning and they're like, we need to get our lives right with the Lord. So they pray and they get their lives right with the Lord. There's deep conviction and repentance. And then they're like, we know we got baptized as kids when we were young, but we want to get baptized again. And just as a mark of saying, we are living all out for Jesus, right? So uh, the soonest they could get a hold of somebody was at eight o'clock or about seven o'clock in the morning. So I show up at eight o'clock on Monday morning and I don't realize it, but they're baptizing these two guys that just gave their, this came back to the Lord, right? At eight o'clock in the morning on Monday morning. I mean, there are times we have to interrupt our staff meetings because somebody's getting saved and getting baptized during the week. That happens all the time. And so they got baptized that Monday morning at eight o'clock while I'm listening to their testimony. And I, I tell Tarek, how about if they share that next Sunday, just have them share their testimony, what the Lord did. So that following Sunday, the two guys are up there with the other young baseball player and Tarek, and they're sharing their testimony. Nine o'clock service, it was really powerful. It was really powerful. They're just from their heart sharing how they got convicted about just living immorally and, and they grew up in church, but they drifted away and they had to come back and they got convicted. And it's beautiful. It was powerful. Then the 11 o'clock service, they're sharing their testimony again. And after the one young man sharing it, he, and, and as he's sharing his testimony, one of the young men, he says, you know, I was going to wait till heaven come. Or no, I was going to wait till the, the college outreach. And I was going to get baptized then. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, no, now is the day of salvation. And so he says, I got baptized Monday morning at eight o'clock in the morning. And so he says, I'm telling you guys, you don't need to wait. This is this young guy. Now he's preaching, right? Before a week ago, he's repenting. Now he's preaching. You know, now's the day of salvation. So I'm in the front row texting Tarek, telling him, take over the service. I'm not going to preach. Take over the service. Throw out the net. He didn't see my text. So he starts, he handed the service off to me. So I just threw the net out. This is Sunday morning, 11 o'clock service. There's probably 11, 1200 adults in there. I threw the net out. We ended up seeing 43 people give their lives to Jesus and get water baptized. I never preached that morning. They were lined up along the, the, the side wall of the church. Well, a lot of people don't realize when we have spontaneous baptisms is that we have staff behind stage. So when people are answering that call or they're just feeling moved to be water baptized, our staff's interviewing them. Why are you here? What does this mean to you? And then they're explaining to them what water baptism really means. A lot of times they're responding and they don't even know what they're responding to. And so they're, they're leading them to the Lord backstage before they actually get into the tank. So that people don't realize that happens all the time. So we're not sloppy with it at all. I say that to say that now there's 43 people lined up against the wall and we're getting their information and people are, but our staff is now working the, the, the line down the side of the, the church. And so afterwards they tell Bonnie and I about 90% of those people that we talked to had never, ever, ever, 
ever given their lives to Jesus. They had never, ever prayed to receive Christ as their Savior. They didn't even, many of them didn't even know what it meant to be born again. So we're, they were literally praying them and leading them to Jesus while they were standing along that wall waiting to be, there was 43 that day. It was crazy. And then that Sunday night, A&M had a thing for their athletes. And so one of the young men that shared his testimony is there, of course, Sunday night at, at the A&M campus for this big athlete thing that the college was doing. He starts sharing again, and he ends up leading one of the other baseball players to the Lord. Now, this guy a week ago was repenting. Now he's sharing his testimony. Then that night he's preaching to one of his buddies and saying, yeah, you need to give your life to Jesus, man. You need to repent. The guy says, I want to repent. So let's pray with me right now. And you prayed with him. And he says, now what do I do? He says, let's go to the fountain. And he leads him to the fountain. And there's about a 200 college students following. They don't even go to New Life. They're following this, these two guys to the fountain and watching him get back. You, can you imagine the dorm room conversations that are going on? Absolutely, 100%. I'm telling you, the harvest is ripe. When evil rises, when there's a rise of evil, there's always a rise of the activity of the Holy Spirit. When there's a revival of evil, you can always respect a revival of God. Always, down through history. And I'll close with this. One of the greatest characteristics, one of the main characteristics that we see of men and women who made history, who changed their world, if not the world, but at least changed their world. One of the main characteristics is what we just read about in Acts chapter 2, this mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In Luke, he says, you'll be clothed with power from on high. In Matthew 3, John says, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming mightier than I whose sandals I'm not fit to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's a baptism of fire, even in addition to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe it's possible we fill with the Holy Spirit and pray in tongues and not even, and, but never have experienced the baptism of fire that empowers them, empowers somebody on a whole nother level to change his world. Amen? To create his own pulpit to be a voice, his voice on the earth, to be his expression of redemption. Dwight L. Moody, I mentioned him. He had been ministering for years. He'd been ministering successfully in, in, in a very impacting way for years, but he sensed that there was, a, there was a, a lack of power that he had. And he was getting ready to go to England. So he was in New York and he's walking on the, he's walking up Wall Street in New York City and the power of God fell on Dwight L. Moody as he was walking up the street. And he was so shook, he hurried, he hurried off to a home of a friend of his. He asked for a room by himself, and he stayed in that room for hours as the Holy Spirit came upon him wave after wave after wave, filling him over and over with joy and with power. It was so strong that Moody asked God to withhold his hand lest he die on the spot. He thought he was going to die. Charles Finney was meeting with somebody and they got up and left and he turned and it says, I turned and was about to take a seat by the fire. Finney had already been preaching for a while. But he says, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost without any expectation of it, without ever having the thought in my mind 
that there was any such thing for me without any recollection that I'd ever heard that, that, that thing mentioned by any person in the world, the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can recollect distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings. No words can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart, Finney said. I wept aloud with joy and love. I don't know, I, I do not know, but I should say I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. These waves came over me and over me and over me, one after the other, until I recollect crying out, I shall die if these waves continue to pass over me. Lord, I cannot bear any more. Yet I still had no fear of death. And how long I continued in this state with the baptism continuing to roll over me and go through me, I do not know. But I know it was late in the evening when a member of my choir, for, for I was the leader of the choir, came into my office to see me. He was a member of the church. He found me in this state of loud weeping, and he said to me, Mr. Finney, what ails you? I could, I could make him no answer for some time. Then he said, are you in pain? And I gathered myself up as best I could. And I replied, no, but so happy that I cannot live. He turned and left the office and in a few minutes returned with one of the elders of the church whose shop was nearly across the way from our office, his attorney's office, his law office. This elder was a very serious man and in my presence had been very watchful and I had scarcely ever seen him laugh or smile. When he came in, I was very much in the state in which I was when the young man went out to call him. He asked me how I felt. I began to tell him. Instead of saying anything, he fell into a most spasmodic laughter. It seems as, as if it was impossible for him to keep from laughing from the very bottom of his heart. But just about that time, I was giving an account of my feelings to this elder of the church and to this other member who was with him. A young man that I knew came into the office, and I was sitting with my back toward the door and barely observed that he came in. He listened with astonishment to what I was saying, and, and the first I knew, he partly fell upon the floor and cried out in greatest agony of mind, yelling, do pray for me. And the elder of the church and the other member knelt down and began to pray for him. And when they had prayed, I prayed for him myself. Soon afterwards, they all retired and left me alone. This is one of the primary characteristics. There is a baptism. There is an empowering. There is a commissioning that the Holy Spirit carries with him when he fills us and when he baptizes us. When he does that, it comes with a commissioning. That's why when this baptism of fire fell on our students, our youth, they automatically felt commissioned to do something, to go, to preach. When it fell on our college students, that baptism that many of them began to experience and the shaking and the weeping and the power of God that came on our young adults, it came with a commissioning to go. Amen. You know, I mentioned that it says all flesh, maid servants, had maidens, servants, meaning the rich and the poor. Well, we, we, we noticed uh, 
William Seymour didn't seem qualified, but he experienced the commissioning of God, the power, the baptism of his power. Maybe you know this story here, but it doesn't eliminate the rich as well. There was a young man in the 1900s uh, by the name of William Borden. He was the third child of the Borden Dairy Company. And he graduated from high school in the early 1900s. His father gave him a, uh, a, a trip around the world, chaperone trip around the world as a graduation gift. And as he was on this round-the-world trip, something touched uh, the heart of William Borden and he wanted to, had a call, he sensed a call and a commissioning to reach the Muslims. So he felt called to become a missionary to China. So before attending seminary though, before he attended seminary, he was gonna go all out for God. So then he goes to uh, Princeton Theological Seminary and while he's in seminary, he writes another two words in his Bible. And those two words are no retreat. And what he meant by that is it would have been too easy and too tempting being the heir of this dynasty to stay home and experience the comforts of home instead of going on the mission field. So he was reminding himself, no retreat, no retreat. I wasn't gonna, he wasn't going to retreat from his call to create his own pulpit to the Muslims. Before heading to China, he decided to study Islam and Arabic in Cairo, Egypt. And while he was there, he contracted meningitis. And within a week or two, he died. He was 25 years old. When they shipped his body and his belongings back home, and his father collected his body and collected his belongings, he went through his son's Bible, and he saw the words that he wrote. He saw those words that he wrote, right? No reserves, no retreat. But then he noticed two additional words under those no regrets. No regrets. He wrote those two words while he was dying of meningitis. So, Lord, we just thank you for just your faithfulness. Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon. To download the notes and slides for this message, visit our website, riverinthehills.com. If you would like to partner with us in moving God's heart and changing the world, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend.